0: Open our Bible this evening to the 76th Psalm. Psalm 76. Oftentimes we're tempted and prone to think that the Word of God is grievous because of the burden of responsibility that it lays upon us. When we have been studying the subject of authority in our evening services the last several weeks, there is a tendency to see how high that we have lifted up the positions of authority that God has created and ordained for this world, and we tend to think of them as being a grievous aspect of God's Word because of the danger that could pose for the Lord's people or people in general if those positions of power were ever abused. When we think of the degree of esteem and respect and obedience and submission that we owe those positions of power, it appears sometimes to be grievous. Now, thankfully, the apostles knew that, and so they were able to write a word of comfort over there in First, uh, First John chapter 5 that his commandments are not grievous. Amen. They are not. But tonight, as we continue to look at the checks on authority, we see another aspect of God's word. And that is the fact that while it is not a grievous burden to be borne, it provides us the liberty of the gospel. The word of God is a book of liberty and it has made men free from oppressive rulers by a number of aspects that we have been looking at. And we want to remind ourselves of those in order quickly before we look at a couple new ones that will close out this, as this uh, section of our study on authority. In Psalm 76, we have some words that are very similar to the four that Brother Jim just reminded us we sang. In one of those hymns, God is over all. The first great check on authority. When we recognize that God ordained kings, he ordained masters, he ordained pastors, he ordained husbands and fathers, and gave them authority and set them up for there to be obeyed and believed and submitted to and feared, when we see that, there's a part of us inside that wonders what is our protection from someone in these positions of power, Taking advantage of us. What is our protection? Well, it's back to those four words. God is over all. Amen. And I want to use Psalm 76, 10 to remind us of the first great check and authority, and that's the fact that God is over all. Psalm 76 and verse 10. Surely, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. When we look at authority, we want some form of restraint that will keep men in positions of authority from taking advantage of fellow men. And that restraint, first of all, is Almighty God, because those men have never been able to, nor shall they ever be able to, exercise their wrath against the restraining power of a sovereign God who controls the affairs of this universe, God is over all, and I'm thankful for the first word of that tenth verse. It doesn't merely say the wrath of man shall praise thee; it says, "Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath shall thou restrain." When you have a when you have confidence in a verse like that, there is no fear of man. Amen. Because surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and any wrath that wouldn't praise God, God restrains it. Do you know what that means? All wrath exercised by man works to the praise of God, and that isn't by their will. They're exercising their wrath to undo the pleasure of God, but God in His wisdom is able to overrule that wrath and work it to His own pleasure and praise, and may God be praised. There's no other being in the universe that can accomplish that. But He does it, and He always does it, and He shall always do it, so that the wrath that He allows praises. Right. The wrath he allows praises him. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, all glory belongs unto thee. There is no God like thee, O Lord. There is no authority like the authority that you have. Thou indeed art over all. And it's by our confidence in that we can face, O Lord, we hope we can face, we believe we can face, anything that you might bring our way because thou art over all. O Lord, let us be faithful. Let us not fear men. Let us not fear calamity. But let us put our trust in thee. Let us not fear authority. But let us love it, esteem it, teach it and defend it as your word does. Knowing all the time that no one in a position of authority has ever exercised wrath against God or men that you have not worked to your praise, and anything beyond that you restrain, for thou art the great check on authority. O Lord, let us not think that you have created us to be the checks of authority, for thou hast done it, and done it perfectly. Have mercy upon us this evening. Bless us with your spirit. O Lord, open our minds and our understanding to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so we might be confirmed it. And, O Lord, let these people understand and see and appreciate the glorious liberty that we have in Scripture. Let them know that the great men in the history of this world who accomplished things in righteousness for their families, for their cities, and for their nations did so by a confidence in the living God. Lord, be with us. Let all see that and submit to it and fear before thee. For we ask these things in the blessed name of Jesus, who is the Prince of the Kings of the earth. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. When we lift up authority, and I do that, that is a cornerstone of my ministry, to lift up authority to the place it belongs by the Word of God, there is that need for looking into Scripture and finding out what the checks are on authority. Now, we've lifted it up very highly. We want to see what restrains, limits, controls, governs uh, the authority so that it is not abused. What is your protection under authority? First of all, God's your protection. God's your protection (coughs) against any evil that can arise in this world. He's the great check of authority. We've looked at that enough. We don't need to repeat ourselves. Because of that, the second check on authority is prayer. The second check on authority is prayer. Because God is able to manipulate, move the hearts of men like he moves the rivers of water, Proverbs 21 and verse 1, because he's able to restrain the wrath of man, we ought to pray that he'll restrain it on our behalf. So prayer is a check on authority. Wives can pray about their husbands, that God will make them benevolent, gentle, kind, and loving husbands. That God will preserve them, keep them, and give them wisdom in their offices. We ought to pray for our President, for our Congress, as we already have this evening, for our Supreme Court. That God will not only preserve them, keep them, and bless them with wisdom, but that he will make them kind and benevolent toward us, his people. In this nation. We ought to pray for our bosses. I know that's something we may not think of very often. But we ought to pray for those that we labor for. Our masters in the flesh. We ought, You ought to pray for your pastor. He needs it more than all the others. We ought to pray for our parents. That God will preserve and bless and keep them. That's exalting authority. But while we're praying for God to keep and bless and preserve them. We ought to pray that God will make them of a spirit that pleases him. And is to our profit. Wives can pray that. Children can pray that. Members can pray that. we got to pray that as citizens of our great nation. Prayer is a check. Because by praying for our governments, we can lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We all want quietness in our lives from civil or political oppression. We all want peace in our lives from political oppression. How do you get it? You pray, First Timothy chapter 2. So prayer is the second check on authority. The third check is Scripture. Scripture is a check in that it tells not only those under authority to submit, it tells those in authority to behave themselves kindly toward those under their rule. So Scripture is a check to those that read it. Scripture is a check to those that don't read it, because those that are under their authority may read it. And it gives them wisdom to be able to give answers to those that are in authority. Scripture's a check. Those under authority are responsible to prove all things. And if men under authority were to prove all things by the word of God, and those in authority knew of it, it is always a check on authority. Right. And I pointed that out last Sunday evening how important it is for a father to know that children might call him in question once in a while for something he's doing if it's out of bound when compared to the out of bounds when compared to the word of God that knowledge that those under authority are proving you out wisely from scripture causes fear and it's a good fear a godly fear one that keeps authority checked Members ought to do that of their pastor, proving all things, searching the scriptures daily to see if those things are indeed so. So proving becomes a check and authority. Obedience is a check. The better you obey the man or the woman, whatever the case might be, the better you obey the man or the woman that you are under, the more God is going to be blessing you under that particular sphere of authority. And the more you obey them, the more they're going to take care of you. It's a law of nature that if you serve someone well, they'll take good care of you. That is a law of nature. God's word confirms it. That when you keep the fig tree, you'll eat the fruit thereof. And that a wise servant shall have inheritance among the sons when a man dies if he behaves himself wisely. Obedience. Why, the Lord himself said in the book of Proverbs... He said that if a man's ways please the Lord, the Lord will cause even his enemies to be at peace with him. You may feel sometimes like your husband, father, boss, pastor, whatever is an enemy of yours. We may think the Supreme Court's our enemy, but if our ways please the Lord, God can make our enemies to be at peace with us. Obedience is a check on authority. You'll be treated better if you learn how to obey better. Yielding is a check on authority. My children came to me this past week and said it's amazing how you're able to take authority and you're working through the checks on it, you still get back to obedience and yielding. (laughs) (laughs) How in the world can you be teaching checks and authority and still be teaching obedience and yielding? Rachel wanted to know this past week. Well, if you yield, you can turn away great wrath as part of a ruler. Ecclesiastes 10.4 If the spirit of the ruler rises up against thee, leave not thy place. For yielding pacifieth great offenses. You may have greatly offended someone in authority. You may be a wife. You've done something terrible that day. Why, you backed the car through the garage door because you hit the button and it didn't go up, and you backed the car through the garage door, and you're wondering what the master, the husband, the king, whatever you want to call him, is going to say when he gets home. Don't leave that place and fight about him not having repaired the garage door or say anything like that to add fuel to the fire. Yield. Say you were stupid. You made a mistake. You were wrong. You shouldn't have done it. Yielding always will pacify a ruler that's greatly offended. How many, we looked at a number of verses in Proverbs that teach us that same thing. A soft answer turneth away wrath. Grievous words stir up anger. If you have done something wrong and you try to defend yourself, excuse yourself, or deny it as not being entirely your fault because the baby was crawling on your lap while you were pushing the button, if you try to excuse yourself, you're going to create a worse situation for yourself. Yielding is a check and authority because who can fight with a pillow? You know, even our mommies taught us that it takes two to fight. And if you will not fight back, you, can, you dissipate the anger of the other party. It's a principle of the Bible. Yielding will pacify an angry ruler. Another check that we have in authority that the Bible teaches us is legal recourse. The Bible teaches us that we ought to take advantage of the laws of our nation to protect ourselves. And in our nation, you get to do that by voting. You get to do that by signing petitions. You get to do that by contributing to campaigns. You get to do that by studying out candidates to determine which would be the most godly to have in office. Sometimes you may think it's the least evil to have an office. But whatever the case is, you have that option in our nation. And not to exercise that legal recourse and then to ask God to bless our nation is tempting the Lord thy God because you're not using the means he's given you. That's right. The Apostle Paul when strapped up to a pillar in a Roman judgment hall in the book of Acts did not ask God to deliver him from a scourging. God would not have delivered him from that scourging. Paul said to the centurion, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman uncondemned? (laughs) And they had a little council about that and decided they ought not to do it. And they were very afraid of Paul after that because he appealed to the law to protect him. He didn't appeal to God when God has already given the salvation in the law. We ought to use the law whenever we have occasion to do so. Paul appealed to Caesar and delivered himself from being tried by the Jews in Jerusalem, which would have been one bad place to have been for the apostle on trial. I want to move now to two new checks in authority. We want to conclude our study of how God has arranged men to have liberty, even though the Bible exalts authority to a high measure. The first one we want to look at tonight is rebuke. God has charged us with the responsibility of rebuking those that are in error. Now that doesn't mean that you run around with a quick, impulsive, haughty judgment of those in authority. If someone's in authority, you had better tread gently and move slowly and go wisely before you go try to rebuke your husband. You are no hero of the faith for quickly rebuking your husband. God puts your husband in authority, and you better move very slowly and stand upon sure ground before you rebuke your husband. Children had better move very slowly before they rebuke their parents. They better have a clear case. It better be a strong case, a black and a white case. Their uh, subjective judgments are the prerogative of those in authority. If you don't like the subjective judgments of your father, there is one being you want to complain to, and that's Almighty God, and I hope he treats you like he does most people who complain against him throughout the Word of God. The subjective judgments of a man in authority are his prerogative, that's why he's in authority. It's only when there is a contradiction, as we'll get to in a moment, with the Word of God, with something God has already spoken on, that you should go and raise your voice against authority. And that should never be with a railing accusation. Even the devil himself is to be delivered from our railing accusations. That's hard to imagine, but it's the truth of God's word. Why Michael the archangel did not bring a railing accusation against the devil. He simply said, the Lord rebuked thee. The Lord rebuked thee. Now that's Michael the archangel with the devil, and none of you are married to the devil. And none of you were born to the devil. And you don't have the devil for your pastor, no matter what you may think of him. And even if you were the devil, all you could say and be scriptural is, the Lord rebuke thee. And point out an error from Scripture and follow your legal recourse. There's a legal recourse for every church member. Matthew chapter 18, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, withdrawing yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly. There's legal recourse for you. But don't bring a railing accusation against those... In authority. Now, the Bible doesn't show us many examples of someone under authority rebuking the person in authority. It's just an understood fact my our responsibility to rebuke error, wherever it might be. You just don't rebel without first trying to correct a person in authority. Look at Leviticus 19. Let's just remind ourselves of how important rebuking someone in error actually is. Leviticus chapter 19. This check and authority is rebuked. Now, we've looked at proving. We've looked at Scriptures. If you read the Word of God, and if you prove what the man in authority is doing by the Word of God, obviously, there's got to be a step beyond that when you would take the Word of God and confront a person in authority, saying, listen, you're asking me to do such and so, and the Word of God tells me not to. I can't obey you. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. If you really care about someone in authority, you will not want to see sin upon that person. You will want to go and rebuke them. If you've been reading scripture, if you've got the wisdom of scripture, if you've been proving this person in authority, there comes a point where you may want to bring to that person's attention, whether it be your husband, your father, your pastor, your master, if he's a child of God and a Christian that, def- that depends upon the word of God, something from scripture if he's doing wrong. And it's a time for a rebuke. It's time for a confrontation. You know, God's raised up men to do that for his saints most of the time. Whether it be an Ahab, God didn't expect all the nation of Israel to run down to the king's palace and bang on the door when Ahab came to the door or Jezebel came to the door to read them the riot act. God never expected the people to do that, never told them to do that. God would raise up a man like Elijah the Tishbite to do that job. And Elijah was cut out for it. That's why John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah and guess who John the Baptist rebuked? But Herod, do you remember him rebuking Herod for having his brother's wife? God will raise up men to do that job of rebuke for men like kings. But if you are ever confronted with a situation where you are being asked by even a king to do something that is wrong, and you have an opportunity to explain why you will not, you ought to do so, like the three men in the fiery furnace who told Nebuchadnezzar that they would not bow down to his golden image, nor would they worship him, and they were not careful to answer him in that matter, but they were going to obey their God, whether God would deliver them from the fiery furnace or not. Amen. There's a time to do that. And that's standing up and rebuking and confronting the person that's trying to require something out of you that God has forbidden. Or has prohibited you from doing something that God has required. There's a time to stand up and say something. Now there's a time just not to do it and not to stand up and say a thing, because to stand up and say a thing would be imprudent and you'd lose your life. Obadiah did not go to Ahab and Jezebel and tell them, I just wanted you to know that I don't think it's right of you to kill all the prophets of God, and I've got a hundred hid out here in a cave. Right. <laughs> Obadiah didn't do that. Obadiah just hid a hundred out there in the cave. <laughs> but now there's a time where if you have an opportunity and it's prudent, you go and confront first. That's the wise, careful, kind, considerate, loving thing to do to someone in authority. You just don't rebel without confronting them first. And with with the situations we deal with, we would always want to try to rebuke those in authority first. We want to do it carefully, wisely, prudently, respectfully. Wives ought always to come with entreaties and speak very gently and submissively to their husbands. Children ought to be the same with their fathers if ever a situation would arise where a rebuke ought to be made. But let's move from a rebuke to the last check of authority, and that's rebellion. This book right here has made men great. This book frees men from the bonds of a superstitious ignorance about authority where people will do whatever they are told. This book frees men from that Because it gives men confidence in a higher form of authority, and that's in God himself. And there is a time for rebellion. And I've been preaching an authority so long and so strongly, it's hard to even say that word, almost. But the Bible teaches rebellion. And we want to look at a number of examples of that tonight. And we want to look at how the scriptures limit that rebellion. Obviously, there's got to be a limitation, or everything I said for eight weeks doesn't count. And I said a lot about how much we owe those in authority. We are to be in subjection to them with all fear. And to resist the ordinance of God is to resist God himself, Romans chapter 13 tells us. And yet I'm teaching you right now there's a time to resist. And there's a time to rebel. Scripture is our last resort. Scripture is our last resort. There will be times in your life where you've got to stand on Holy Scripture and there's nowhere else to stand and everyone may be opposed to you including those in authority and yet you are bound by conscience to obey Scripture because this is God's revelation. Amen. A pastor may be God's minister. A father may be God's minister. A husband may be God's minister but there is one thing that exceeds them all and that is Holy Scripture which cannot err, while every one of those three men and their offices I just described can err. Scripture does not. You say, well, I might be in error. That is the liberty of a conscience that God gives in Scripture. If you have a well-founded position from Holy Scripture, you do not worry about the fact that you are infallible. You go with the light that God has given you. And I'm telling you that right now, and that is what saves churches, and that's what saves groups from Jim Jones-type mentalities, where they would obey anything they were told. You obey Holy Scripture, even if you've got a doubt that you might be wrong. If you're convinced of it, if God has shown you something and given you light on some particular passage of Scripture, and you've got a case, then stand with it. Let's look at how this has to be limited. If God has commanded us to do something, if God has told us to do something, and someone in authority tries to keep us from doing that, we ought to rebel. I would hope you first try to rebuke, but we ought to rebel. If a woman is told by her husband that she ought not to continue attending an assembly of God's saints and to be baptized she ought to continue attending that assembly of saints and be baptized anyway. Because God has dictated that he wants her to attend the assembly of his saints and to be baptized. It is the baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God, not toward her husband. And a woman, listen, I have faced in my little short ministry that situation several times where women with a great burden of conscience have been denied by their husbands to be baptized, and they want to know what should they do. God wants them to be baptized, and so God ought to be obeyed. God, a husband will sometimes not want his wife to attend an assembly of God's saints. She ought to attend anyway. You say, but that could end up in that unbelieving husband departing from his wife. First Corinthians chapter 7 deals with that. God knows that can happen. We obey God rather than men. And that's a husband, a king, whoever it might be, or the rulers of the Jews. The Department of Social Services would prefer us from not spanking our children. The Department of Social Services has issued rulings to keep us from spanking our children. The Department of Social Services, in conjunction with our government, may may make it a felony or some great crime to spank your children. What are you going to do? I'm going to keep right on obeying the book of Proverbs that tells me the way to train a child is to spank them. Because you don't train children the way DSS suggests. We've got a nation that speaks for itself of people trained the (laughs) DSS way. It doesn't work. We have to obey God rather than our government when God requires something and they try to prohibit us from doing that. Right. Then... God may have prohibited something that someone in authority may try to get you to do. You may work for some master who wants you to participate with him in uh, taking advantage of the company and stealing from your master, from your higher master, from the company at large. That's happened before. You may work for some boss that wants you to cover his crime and work with him in stealing from the company. Now that's trying to get you to do something God's prohibited. You shouldn't obey that. You say, I might lose my job. You lose your job, God will take care of you a whole lot better than a thief will take care of you trying to obey Him. God may prohibit us from something, and we better avoid it regardless of what someone in authority may tell us. And listen, situations are going to arise in matters where God hasn't commanded nor prohibited anything directly. And you're not sure what to do. And I want to tell you, if there's a life in danger, or if your health is in danger, or your ability to keep God's commandments in the future is in danger, then you protect yourself. And that's the principle of mercy where Jesus said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. And you'll see how I apply that in just a minute. There will be times in your life where you're faced with a situation you don't know what to do. Because you don't have a specific Bible verse to rest on, but you save life and you save health and you save your ability to keep God's commandments in the future. Let's look at some examples. Now I'm going to give you some examples of rebellion. We have poured through these scriptures looking at all the principles and the examples of exalting authority. Now we look at some of rebellion, and it's a few examples like this that make men courageous when they have to stand up against an oppressive government that is trying to step in between them and God. And there have been martyrs for the faith that have stood up and boldly lost their lives because they would not subject themselves to a man in authority. How many men have been told during the 1200 years of the Dark Ages to deny their confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation by grace alone? How many men were told that they had to give allegiance to the Pope of Rome if they were to preserve their lives and they would not do so even though they were told to do so by someone in authority? They gave up their lives, but they stood on Holy Scripture. And believe me, there's a whole crowd of them. They're called the martyred souls of Jesus around the throne of God at this hour. And they're in heaven, Amen. even though they rebelled against the authority of this world. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 15. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives of which the name of the one was Shiphrah, and the name of the other, Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. The king of Egypt called for the midwives, and said to them, Why have ye done this thing? and have saved the men and children alive. And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively, and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, the people multiplied and waxed, very mighty, and it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. Did you hear what I just read? These two women... They're called Hebrew midwives. They're not Hebrews. They're Egyptians. All you have to do is look at their names. They're Egyptians that serve the Hebrew women when the Hebrew women were having babies. And Pharaoh said, when you go down to those Hebrew women, and they're about to give birth, they're on the stools. If you see a boy coming out, we don't need any more boy Israelites around this place. Kill the boy, but save the women children alive. Now there is required infanticide which is the killing of infants. Now, our nation's getting really close to this in another way, and that's abortion. It's legalized. The next step that a, that a progressive nation might go to is required abortion after, say, one or two children. There are nations in the world that practice that already. All right? What will you do? What will you do if you know of a woman in the city of Greenville that is required abortion in our land, who is conceived a second child, and you're only allowed one by law? What, are you, you going to help her? I hope we help her. I hope we do everything and the wit with the wisdom God's given us to protect and preserve her from a government that would take human life like that, just like these Hebrew midwives. And I hope whoever helps and abets them, God builds them houses too. Right. <laughs> and I believe God will do that. But I like these uh, Egyptian women who are the Hebrew midwives because they feared God. They feared God, which meant you preserve life. You say with the king, the king of Egypt. Can you admit if the king of Egypt said to do something, you did it, didn't you? If the king of Egypt said jump, you said how high? You obeyed the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt could take your head off simply for not liking you. Do you remember the butcher? I mean, I'm thinking of Mother Goose. Do you remember? <laughs> do you remember the baker and the man who bore the cup of wine before Pharaoh that were in prison along with Joseph? Do you remember them? One of them was restored to his position, and the other one had his head cut off. I was thinking the butcher, the baker, the candlestick, and you remember all that. (laughs) There's various tracks up there, and not all of them are in the right place. (laughs) But do you remember that do you remember that incident when Joseph's down there and saying one of you guys is going to get lifted back to your position with Pharaoh and the other if he was going to get your head lifted up too, but it's not going to be in quite the same way. <laughs> he had his head lifted up, but it wasn't the same way. Pharaoh could do that. Pharaoh didn't like the way you treated him, your life is over. These women feared God more. That'd take quite a bit of fear of God, wouldn't it? That's right. That would take quite a bit of fear of God. You could always say, Well, listen. I'm just doing my job and God's going to hold Pharaoh responsible. This is how people argue. This is how they reason. I'm just going to do my job and God will hold Pharaoh responsible and he'll see that I'm innocent. No. God gave you a mind and God gave you scripture and God put his fear in your conscience so that you are sufficiently able to judge in matters that black and white and you ought to take a stand because you will not avoid guilt. You will not avoid guilt by trying to lay all the blame on Pharaoh. You have got to step in and save those lives. And they did. The midwives feared God and did not. Verse 17 is, the king of Egypt commanded them, but they saved the men and children alive. Now the king of Egypt calls them in and says, What are you doing? You've disobeyed my commandment. How can you be doing this? Now we've got the second problem in this text. They realize their lives are in jeopardy, so they lied. They said, listen, you don't understand, king. They didn't talk that way, but they said, Pharaoh, you don't understand. By the time we get to these Hebrew women, they're so quick in giving birth. By the time we get there, why they're already holding that baby, and you just can't take a baby out of a mother's arms and kill it. Lied to Pharaoh to cover up what they were doing to preserve those children alive. You know, it's one thing when a baby's on its way out and a mother's so concentrating on... The labor and the delivery of that child to smother it very quickly. And that mother thinks she gave birth to a dead child. That's one thing, but it's a whole different thing to pull a sucking child out of mother's arms. And even Pharaoh could understand that. And they covered themselves by lying to Pharaoh to preserve their lives. Now look what they've done. They've disobeyed a king, and they've lied to a king. First case, they were saving little children's lives. Second case, they were saving their own lives. And God, look what it says about them. It says about them in verse 20, Therefore, therefore, what else do we know about the midwives except that they disobeyed the king and they lied? <coughs> you know anything else about them? You know their names. Is that why God lo- dealt well with them? God dealt well with them for what they did. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. When the people of God have got a hold of a passage of scripture like that, it has made great men out of normal men. That's right. Yeah. Because if you believe something like that, you could stand up against an oppressing king that would tell you to do something against your God. You would stand up even if he <coughs> changed you to a stake and burns you at that stake, you would obey God rather than men. And men have done that. You would harbor other Christian saints in your home. You would harbor the Apostle Paul. You would let the Apostle Paul down a basket over the city wall of Damascus and possibly lose your life for it. You would do that because you would obey God rather than men, and you knew it. You would know that God's going to deal well with you just like these two women who have their names in Scripture for the high crimes of rebelling against the king and lying to that king. Their names are mentioned in two men. May God be praised. This is a liberating book. This book makes men's consciences free. Come to chapter 2. Come to chapter 2 of the book of Exodus. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife the daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a good... Well, what, can I stop right there? I want to read verse 22 of chapter 1. We've got to get the context. Because the midwives didn't help Pharaoh, Pharaoh made a general proclamation throughout the land. Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Since the, the midwives preserved some lives, but now there's a general proclamation. Every boy and baby that we see in the land is to be destroyed. Then we read about a man of the house of Levi taking <coughs> the wife a daughter of Levi. Verse 2, And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Now, I I try to help you read scripture. Now, when it says that she saw that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Does that mean if he wouldn't have been a goodly child, she had just thrown him in the river? I, think about it. First. Have you ever met a woman that looked at her baby and said it wasn't a goodly child? <laughs> Listen, sometimes you want to walk by and hand them a banana. But when they look at their baby, when they look at their baby, they believe it's a goodly child. God put that in the heart of all women. But read the text, because what the text is telling you, the natural motherly instinct to preserve the life of her child was active. She saw him, she hid him three months. And when she could not longer hide him, because his crying is getting louder, he might be starting to move around. She took form an ark of bulrushes, you know the story so well, daubed it with slime and with pitch, put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. Pharaoh's daughter ends up taking that boy, and that boy is Moses. Moses becomes a great leader of the Israelites. I want to tell you something. Moses' parents got into the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. That's right. You all know, I don't need to turn you there, do we? Hebrews chapter 11, Moses' parents made it into Hebrews chapter 11, how they get there. By faith, they disobeyed the king. Do you mean you can disobey the king by faith? Right. Amen. When you're saving life, they saved their little baby. A woman, how many times... I have heard women reason many times, if a woman obeys her husband, when her husband tries to get her to do something evil, then God will hold the husband responsible and the wife will be free. God doesn't deal that way. If they hadn't exercised their faith that way in Hebrews chapter 11... They'd have been guilty of a sin of having, of having killed their own child. Right. You don't ever reason that way, especially when you're intelligent enough to know better. Now sometimes someone in authority may do to you and slip something past on you, but that is not what we're dealing with here. We are dealing with cases where you know by the word of God you ought to or you ought not to do some certain thing. And you obey God rather than any man. We've got two Egyptian women who feared God and God dealt well with them. We have a father and a mother of Moses who protected his life and saved him against the king's commandment. They made it into the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You read a few passages like that, it'll give you courage to stand up and be counted for God and his word rather than simply knuckle under in superstitious fear of those in authority. Remember, wives are told to fear their husbands and to be in subjection to them with all fear Without amazement. First Peter 3.6 And amazement is when a woman's just so torn up. By trying to obey her husband, she can't think for herself. God expects you to be able to think for yourself. And if your husband or your pastor or anyone tries to get you to do something that is wrong, you ought to be able to say, no, I am not going to do that. That's a commandment. To draw the line. And there are people in this world, we have some poor members of this congregation who have relatives who believe that a woman is accepted from that, and as long as she goes and obeys her husband, God will hold him responsible and she's free. That is not the case. It is a commandment, 1 Peter 3, 6, not to be an amazement to your husband. Do we even need to look at Rahab? Rahab the harlot, everybody knows about Rahab the harlot, You say rebellion against authority. Everybody says, oh, Rahab, that's the one they know, but they don't know the Bible's got about 50 more just like her. we have looked at two right here. Two Egyptian women and Moses' parents, Rahab the harlot. What would she do? She hid two Israelite spies from the rulers of her city who wanted them, who wanted to take them captive. And when the rulers of her city came to her door and said, where are the two men that came into your house? She said, oh, you wanted them? If you'll hurry in that direction, I doubt if they've made the hills yet, you'll be able to catch them. That's what she did. She was slick. If she had just stood there and said, I'm going to use the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> That's dumb. That's dumb. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the Fifth Amendment. Don't ask me that question. I don't want to answer it. She didn't do that. She lied. She hid the spies, and then she lied, so that those been at her door, thinking that if they hurried, they might be able to catch the spies before they made the mountains. They went rushing away, and she had them upstairs. That's a good woman. Guess where she made? Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter eleven, by faith, Rahab the harlot. You want to know where else that woman made it? Let's talk about Matthew chapter 1. She's one of the great grandmothers of our Lord, Jesus Christ. You know where else she made it? James chapter 2, where where the Apostle James is dealing with faith and manifesting your faith by words. Guess who he raises? He raises a man, he raises a woman. Who's the man? Abraham. Abraham. Guess who gets lined up alongside Abraham? Rahab the harlot. What did she do that was so great? Did she do something equal to what Abraham did in offering his son in an altar? By faith, she stood at the door and got rid of the rulers of that city and preserved the lives of two spies of God's people. And she gets raised up in James chapter 2. May God be praised for those examples of God-fearing men and women. You know how you can tell if you really fear God? What happens when you're put in jeopardy for your life? versus God putting you in jeopardy for tell, for defending him and his people. That's when you'll know how much you fear God. Rahab the harlot made a choice that she would defend God's people even though she put her life at risk. But she was going to defend for sure as much as she could the two men that were laying up on the roof of her house. She did that. And that's faith. That's true faith. Manifesting itself by works. Ray have the harlot. What, what a terrible beginning. Wasn't even a, wasn't even an Israelite harlot by profession. She gets into Matthew chapter 1 and the lineage of Christ. She gets into Hebrews 11 along with David and Abraham and all the other great men of scripture. She gets into James 2 along with Abraham also. Don't forget that. Look at Judges chapter 6. The book of Judges chapter 6. Now the IRS so far would love me, wouldn't they? The IRS, based on what I've said so far in this series of messages, would love me. Once upon a time, there was a man who hadn't paid his taxes for a number of years, and the Lord and Providence had it that I'd be able to talk to him from the Word of God and show him the responsibility for a Christian to pay taxes. The story goes that that man went into an office of the Internal Revenue Service and stood there and said, I am here, I am ready, I am willing, and I am able to pay. What do you want? And they said, wait you? You? What are you here for? Well, my pastor the little church that I go to has told me that I ought to be here and pay my taxes. You know that. Some of you know that story. And they said, tell us more about this church. Sometimes we're on their side, aren't we? Sometimes we're on their side because we teach the word of God. And if there was ever a man that believed and taught the paying of tribute, it was Caesar who said, render unto Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. However, there comes a time where if our government began confiscating excessive taxes to where? We could not keep God's commandments. We would fudge. And, However, there comes a time where if our government began confiscating excessive taxes to where we could not keep God's commandments, we would fudge and take from the government to preserve life. Now, there are limitations, I'm going to put on what I'm saying. You have got to have life at stake. You cannot have a better car at stake. God doesn't care whether you want a better car. But if your life is at stake, we will become the craftiest tax filers this country has yet seen in order to preserve ourselves, and we will base that on Scripture that there comes a time to disobey authority if it's necessary to preserve life. And I want to say one thing right now to end all doubt. We aren't even close to it. This nation is so unbelievably generous in its tax laws, incredibly so. You don't pay diddly, hardly, compared to what we enjoy even yet. Though we see abuses everywhere, our tax burden is not that great, considering the benefits we enjoy. Get in your car and drive to Michigan. Enjoy the two, the four, the six, the eight lanes, depending on where you might be, with all the lighting, with all the signs, with all the safety. Everywhere you go, we enjoy great benefits in our nation. Now, we can talk about other nations. You can go to England if you want to live and talk about 90% tax rates instead of 15 and 28. And then you get to knock off 2,000 for every child you have and your own self. and. You give money to the church of Jesus Christ. You get to knock that off your income also. And you want to complain about our government? Listen, it's one of the most generous this world has seen. That's right. In supporting the preaching of the gospel and giving us benefits. We aren't even close to having a tax system so onerous that we even have to think about what I'm saying. But I'm going to use a Bible example and I'm going to set your hearts. So that if we ever face that day, there shouldn't be any doubt about it. Judges chapter 6 tells us about a time in the nation of Israel when God delivered them into the hand of the Midianites seven years. The first verse tells us that. God delivered Israel into the hands of Midian. And what the Midianites would do is wait all year until it was harvest time. And when Israel was harvesting all their produce, Midian would just come in, take everything they had. Take it. And listen, there have been nations that have existed like that. Been absolute, their nation has been absolutely raped economically to where they could not support themselves. And we can read in verse 4, look at verse 3. And so it was, when Israel had sown, that the Midianites came up with the Amalekites, and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them, and destroyed the increase of the earth, till they'll come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. No sustenance. We're not talking about a 15% marginal tax rate after you get all your deductions and personal exemptions. We're talking about no sustenance. You can easily provide for yourself in our nation's tax system right now. You say, but I just hate making those payments. I just hate seeing all those withholdings on my my paycheck, my pay stub, every pay period. Then listen, we deserve what we have. If we have an onerous tax system, we deserve it. And if you look around, it's really not all that bad for all the benefits that we enjoy. Right. That is not the issue. The issue here is no sustenance. And if it ever comes to that, we will look again at paying tribute to Caesar. If the tribute to Caesar is leaving us no sustenance, I want to tell you something about the man that God picked in this chapter. I want to tell you that He did make it to Hebrews chapter eleven before He even mentioned His name. And I want to tell you where God found Him in Judges chapter. Who's the man in Judges chapter six? Gideon. Gideon. Where did the Lord find Him and ordain Him to the ministry? What was He doing? Judges chapter 6, verse 11. And there came an angel of the Lord, and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Gideon was called by an angel of God to go and be the prophet and judge to, the judge to lead God's people when he was hiding his produce from from the enemy. You say, well, that's an enemy. That doesn't sound like the government. Listen, God gave Israel over to Midian. God gave Israel over to Babylon. God gave Israel over to Rome. And when they were under those nations, they were to be in subjection to them because that was their judgment. And the judgment was the same here. But they couldn't get any sustenance. They couldn't survive. He couldn't provide for his family. And when you can't provide for your family, not because of slothfulness, but because of an oppressive government or an oppressive enemy like this, then we find a man like Gideon threshing wheat by the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Here's a man hiding his economic activities from those that would take it away, even though they had the God-given right over that nation because God was chastening them. Turn to First Samuel 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, when your life is at stake for the life of your children, God understands you taking measures to provide for them. Listen, the Bible, uh, a little rabbit trail here, just for a second. God understood that if you ever found a thief breaking up in your house, that you had the perfect right to kill that thief. It doesn't say when you find a man in your house threatening your life. It says when you find a man breaking up in your house. You know, in the middle of the night, if you woke up in the middle of the night and a man's breaking up in your house, the adrenaline, the emotion that would rage through your body, God understands that and He allows for it. And He says, if you kill a man in your house who's breaking up your house, you are free. He goes on to say in the next verse that if you find him the next day, you're not allowed to kill him. That makes sense, too. There's no adrenaline the next day. There's no emotion the next day. There's no darkness the next day. Because it says that the sun be not on him. Do you know what it's like in the dark, not knowing what kind of a weapon a man has and he's in your house a stranger and he's breaking up and he's stealing there, there's a rush of a there's an automatic reflex react. there ought to be there ought to be and you would do something to preserve your life and your family's life and God knew that. Our God is so reasonable and understanding and wise most of all I'm thankful for it that in verses like that you don't have to wonder about what you ought to do go ahead and tell him to make your day First Samuel 16 and verse 1. The, some of these examples are going to surprise you if you haven't thought of them before. I am, I'm going to show you examples of rebellion against authority and lying against authority in order to preserve life. The Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? But Saul still came. Fill thine horn with oil and go... I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. We have a life in danger. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, now, who's telling who to do what? Can you all read? Can you all think? Who's telling who to, whom to do what? God's telling Samuel to make up an excuse to cover for himself going down there to anoint a king. You say, well, he wasn't really telling a lie. Well, he wasn't telling the whole truth either. Nothing but the truth. The, not, the whole truth would have been, King Saul, I'm going down there to Bethlehem to anoint the next king of Israel because God's rejected you from being king. That wouldn't have been good for his health. So God gave him something better to say. Go ahead and take a sacrifice and say, I am come to sacrifice the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. God protecting his people when life is at stake, telling Saul you're going down there for a different purpose, is no sin. He didn't do anything that hurt King Saul whatsoever. In fact, what he did was protect King Saul from committing murder. Poor Saul. A few people lied to him in his time. 1 Samuel 19. 1 Samuel 19. I don't know how I could exalt the office of parent any higher than I have tried over the last ten weeks, and as long as I've been your pastor. But listen, there comes a point where I've got to say this. And I can I can say it to all the children who can hear me. If you're a father. Ever tells you to do something that God has prohibited. If your father ever tells you to do something that God has told you not to do, and you know God's told you not to do it, don't you do it? Right. And if God, and if your father won't let you do something that God's told you, you better do, and you know it, and you're sure of it, then you do it anyway. First Samuel 19. First Samuel 19, <coughs> verse 11. Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. Michael, remember, is Saul's daughter. So Michael, verse 12, let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. Now her father wants David killed, but the daughter is already rebelling against her father, King Saul. And Michael took an image. And laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered it with a cloth. Pretty good. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. And Saul sent the messengers again to David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. And when the mess can you, no mercy at all. Can you believe that having a man hauled up to you in a bed while he's sick and you're going to kill him. That Saul hated David so much. Why did Saul hate David? He was. Because he was wise. Because he was wise. 1 Samuel 18. And when the messengers were come in, behold, there was an image in the bed with a pillow of goats here for his bolster. And Saul said to Michael, Why hast thou deceived me so, and sent away mine enemy, that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said unto me, Let me go. Why should I kill thee? Michael said the reason she did it is that David threatened her with her life. Now, can can you follow all this? This looks like a soap opera, but it's the word of God. And listen, it is passages like this that free men. When you have an opportunity to preserve life, David was not a criminal. Here's the reasoning that has to take place. A A little person who is way down beneath the king can say to himself, but I don't know if I'd ever be able to make that decision. What if David was a criminal? what if the king had a right to take David and kill him? You follow? You can go through that reason. Maybe the king has a reason to kill David. Do you know what God gave you between your two ears? Human intelligence. Do you know what he gave you in this book? God's wisdom. And by putting the two of those things together, there are times where you make a matter of judgment whether that person in authority has the right to do that or not. Now, if you had some criminal that came to your house and asked to stay, just let's say the police were chasing them through your neighborhood, they came to your door and asked to stay inside, and you said, just come right on in here, can I get you a Diet Coke? You, who are you thinking of right now? A woman named Jail in the Bible. You bring them on in, but then you turn them over to the authorities, I hope. If you had any reason at all that that person was under suspicion for some crime. What happens to little people, us, when we're under a cane, we go through that, maybe they've got a reason to take David. Maybe I should just turn David over anyway and trust the Lord to protect David. Because I just don't know if I want to make a decision. Listen, I could. God has given us human intelligence and God has given us his wisdom in this word. Little people like Michael can make a choice like that. she knew David was innocent. Men wives know that babies are innocent and so forth, and so on. Michael, a king's daughter, not only was Saul her father, Saul was also her king. She deceived him, she helped David escape, and then she lied to cover up why she had done it to protect herself. Did you all see that? So David fled and escaped, verse 18. She did what was good and preserved the life of David. You say, but it doesn't say in here that God liked what Michael did. Does it have to say that for you? Does it have to say that for you? We already know that from every other principle and example we've seen, because she was a preserving life from a man who was going to kill an innocent man without any reason. First Samuel chapter twenty, Jonathan, Michael's brother and Saul's son, does the same thing. First Samuel chapter twenty. Now Saul's holding a feast, hoping David will show up so that he can kill him. And David doesn't show up. And we take up in 1 Samuel 20, and verse 24 tells us that David went and hid himself in the field. That's right out where the king was going to sit down to eat meat for the new moon. And the king sat there and saw that David's place was empty. Verse 25, he didn't say anything on that day. Verse 26, surely he's not sanctified yet to eat with me. On the second day, verse 27... He asked Jonathan, Wherefore cometh not the son of Jesse to me, neither yesterday nor today? He didn't want to look too eager. He'd give himself away that he had some motive for wanting David there. But the second day he asked Jonathan, Where is the son of Jesse? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Let me go, I pray thee, for our family hath a sacrifice in the city. And my brother, he hath commanded me to be there. Family reunion. i got to go home because of the family reunion there. And now if I have found favor in thine eyes, let me get away, I pray thee, and see my brethren. Therefore he cometh not unto the king's table. But Jonathan goes through this long explanation as to why David's not there. Now this time, the deception wasn't too slick. Because Saul says in verse 30, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said unto him, thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion, and under the confusion of thy mother's nakedness. And then he goes on to say, as long as David's alive, don't you know that you're never going to be king? Jonathan never worried about that, did he? By the first time Jonathan met David, he had turned everything over, including his robe and his sword to David because he saw in David the next king of Israel. He just asked that David would have mercy on his family when he was king. And if he could be second to him in the kingdom. What a glorious man Jonathan is in the scriptures. But I want you to see Jonathan covered for David against his father to preserve the life of David. 1 Samuel 25 1 Samuel 25 Do we have an example in the Bible of a woman... Rebelling against her husband, do we? Abigail in First Samuel twenty-five. The first thing to always read when you read First Samuel twenty-five is verse three, where it says the name of the man was Nabal, the name of his wife Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. One of the beautiful countenance doesn't help anyone think, but good understanding certainly does. And what this woman does shows what a woman of good understanding will do. David is being chased by King Saul. He has some men with him. They're hungry. They can't stop and build tents and plant vineyards to eat. So from time to time, they might ask to borrow some food in order to provide for the company that's with David. David sent messengers and asked Nabal if he couldn't have a little bit to eat. And Nabal makes... A terrible statement against David. He says in verse 10, Who is David? The whole nation of Israel knew who David was. He's the best man they'd ever seen. Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. He's saying, Who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There's lots of runaway servants. Why should I give David anything? Because he was a wicked man. And so the messengers return to David and tell them Nabal's response. Now, back in these days, you didn't uh, overlook some things like that, especially since David had been taking care of Nabal's sheep for a good while. While those sheep were wandering out in the woods, and David's out there with all his men, he's never taken one of them without permission, and he's preserved them from any enemies of Nabal. So Nabal, I mean, so David's going to arm his men and go confront Nabal about what he has said. Now, a woman heard what her husband said. And that woman was Abigail. And quietly, without saying anything to her husband, she saddles up in verse 18. She gets 200 loaves and two bottles of wine, five sheep ready dressed, five measures of parched corn, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on asses. And she said, Go before me. Verse 19. Behold, I come after you, but look at what the Holy Spirit puts in here. But she told not her husband Nabal. She told not her husband Nabal. Now, she she could have gone to Nabal and said, Nabal, I'm saddling, I'm taking a hundred loaves of bread and I'm saddling up a few asses with five dressed kids and I'm going to go feed David. That wouldn't have been good for her health. That's stupid. So what do you do? You go do it and you don't say anything. She goes and meets David and she says, Don't go kill my husband and all the men with him. I'm here in God's place to tell you not to do it. And here's some food for you. Please have mercy. My husband's a fool. You say, I thought the women were always to reverence their husbands and call the Lord. Well, if he's a fool, he's a fool. and There comes a time for calling your husband a fool when he is a fool. Especially when there's a life at stake and the life happens to be the next king of Israel. whom Everyone in that nation knew that God was upon that man David. And David thanks her. And she goes home. We read verse 36. Abigail came to Nabal and behold he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. Wherefore, she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. She didn't tell him that night. But it came to pass in <coughs> the morning, when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, and his heart died. His heart died within him, and it came as a stone. And ten days later, he died, and Abigail ended up marrying David. The point of the whole lesson is this. Even a woman, here, in a situation, faced with a decision... Her husband has just refused to take care. A very reasonable request of David to provide him some food. He does not want it to be done. She goes and does it anyway and does not tell her husband. And waits until it's already done and taken care of and David is not going to come and wipe everyone out before she tells him. And the Lord vindicates her by killing Nabal within ten days. She was a woman of good understanding and there is a woman that disobeyed to preserve life. Not only David's life, she preserved her husband's life. Why? Because David was bent on destroying all over there. Daniel was one of the wisest men in Israel. Nebuchadnezzar captive. Daniel chapter 1. He was hauled into Babylon. There was never a greater than Nebuchadnezzar. Solomon couldn't touch Nebuchadnezzar. Solomon had greater wisdom. Solomon had great glory in Israel. But as far as an earthly monarch and had a controlling influence in this world and a glorious empire, and he the head of gold. We talk about kings. And Daniel stands before that king, his managers, who are managing the eunuchs, of the palace. And he refuses to eat the king's meat. Remember that from Daniel chapter 1. I'm not even going to turn you to it. There is rebellion again. And God vindicated Daniel for rebellion. Someone might say, why? Was Daniel a vegetarian? Why did Daniel refuse to eat that meat? That was most likely, as we find very many cases in the Bible, meat offered to a pagan idol that David. Daniel was not going to defile himself with. Right. Or it could have been pork. Or it could have been some other meat that Daniel couldn't eat, but he refused to do so. He obeyed God rather than any even though he wasn't in Israel any longer. And who would have known? Listen, he was just trying to protect his life by disobeying God. We never protect our lives by disobeying God we protect our lives by disobeying men Amen. never has there been a martyr for Jesus Christ who did things right that stood before a tribunal and was asked to deny Jesus Christ and that person denied Jesus Christ with the reasoning I'm going to save my life do you understand what I'm saying you never disobey God to preserve your life you disobey men preserve your life, to obey God. You may run and hide. Why, Saul, the Apostle Paul himself, was let down to bask, as I've already mentioned. He ran and hid. And the righteous will run and hide as long as they can. For 1,200 years, during the dark ages, they hid in the caves and the valleys and the mountains of Europe, to preserve themselves from the oppressing power of pagan Rome. But you never, you never disobey God to preserve life. And Daniel stood before those men in Daniel chapter 1 and said, I will not eat that meat. Because he was obeying God. And he put his life in jeopardy. But God blessed him and took care of him. We know about the three Hebrew men who would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. We know about Daniel disregarding Darius's law that he could, not, he could not pray to any god but Darius for 30 days. Or the god of the Babylonians. Or the god of the Persians. Daniel, as his habit was, went in three times a day, opened his window, and prayed toward Jerusalem, disobeyed the king to obey God. Ever read about the wise men that met with Herod? They met with Herod inquiring where the king of the Jews was. Now, when you went and asked King Herod, where's the king of the Jews? That's not good for your health either. It's not good for anybody's health. (coughs) And Herod said... uh, Well, I'm not sure. Let's call the scribes. The scribes said, Bethlehem of Judea. And Herod said, Wise men, after you find this king of the Jews, please come back and tell me where he's located so that I can go worship him too. What does the Bible tell us the wise men did? They went home another way. They disobeyed the commandment of the king. We can run this from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Those wise men went home another way because they knew that Herod was not bent on worshiping the Christ child he was bent on his destruction and because those wise men made him angry by doing that he killed all the children in that area two years of age and under and there was weeping in Israel Peter and John had to stand before the rulers of the Jews who said we command you to no longer preach in the name of Jesus of Nazareth we have that great and glorious statement that's the easiest way to remember everything I've said tonight we ought to obey God rather than men. There may be times where you've got to say that to a father. You've got to say that to a husband. You've got to say that to a pastor. I have to obey God rather than you and separate from the company of the church. That may happen before a master. That may happen to the leaders of this nation. We have to obey God rather than men. Listen, if our nation continues to deteriorate, they may require or prohibit things in our lives that God expects us to be doing. And we will have to say it. We ought to obey God rather than men. And the great men in the history of this world have done that. They have put their lives at jeopardy to rebel against human authority to keep God's authority. Because if God's commanded us to do something, we must do it. Amen. if God's prohibited something, we must avoid it. And it's by rebelling against authority that we have the final check that when God has told us what is right and what is wrong in this world, that is the final check it's the last resort. It's not something I hope we ever have to face. I hope we don't have to face it. But if we come to it, there ought not to be any quibbling in our minds, nor should there be any debate among us. What we have to do. We must obey God rather than men. And it's a final and great check on authority. We begin with the fact that God's in control. We end with the fact that God has given us His Word that saves us from men we obey Him above all others. May the Lord Jesus Christ be honored and glorified by everything that's been said tonight. And may His people be increased in their faith and courage, and if the day comes, may we be prepared to do those things that are pleasing to Him. And may we, like Rahab, the parents of Moses, be exonerated, blessed, Prosper by God as He sees what we've done and honoring Him before the Fully of Amen. Amen.